Hey everyone, and welcome to The Kodakery. I'm Megan. And I'm Josh. For this week's episode, we went to Austin, Texas for our first live audience podcast. It followed a three-day projectionist workshop at the Alamo Draft House, where students learned about how to project films in theaters, maintain projectors, and clean and protect film. The energy level of the attendees was tangible. There is a living, breathing thirst for the knowledge needed to sustain film exhibition, the third branch of the motion picture industry, alongside capture and archival. Our guests, Rob, Antonella, and Jason, were buzzing with the excitement of film after being reinvigorated by the interest at the workshop. The demand is increasing for the authentic film-on-film experience, and we at Kodak are thrilled by it. While exhibition may not become what it used to be, the demand is growing and we love it. We sat down with our guests to talk about how the workshop went and to discuss the medium of film. So let's jump into the Kodakery and talk with them. All right, well, hey everybody, welcome to the Kodakery. Uh, The Kodakery is a podcast that uh, Kodak does where we talk to interesting people from film, science, and art. And we're here with some very interesting people today who've just finished up a really incredible event. Um, If you're not familiar with the Kodakery, feel free to look it up on your phone right now. We'll wait, go ahead. What we wanna do is really kind of kick off a discussion of this incredible event that was just finishing up. And uh, so let's kind of throw it to Megan. She's going to introduce our panelists. Cool. So with us is um, Antonella Bonfanti from Canyon Films. And what is your role at Canyon Films? So um, I am the director of the Canyon Cinema Foundation. Um, Canyon Cinema is a distributor of experimental film, artist-made film, moving image, which has actually been around since 1966-67. So we're celebrating 50 years next year. Um, Our the works that we distribute are primarily on 16 millimeter. So 93% of our collection is 16 millimeter. Nice. Uh, the rest is on uh, 35, 8, Super 8. And we primarily um, lend those films out to educational institutions worldwide um, that are teaching uh, cinema, cinema studies, uh, filmmaking, um, art, art history, etc. Um, and also loan out to museums, cultural institutions worldwide. Cool. Um, so sitting next to Antonella is Jason Metcalf, and Jason works at the Alamo Draft House, which is the venue that hosted this workshop. And Jason, what is your role here at the Alamo Draft House? I am the National Technical Presentation Manager here. So I work with all of our projectionists nationwide and also maintain, help maintain our standards of presentation, standards of quality, and, um, and yeah, that's cool. what we do. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, last but not least, we have Rob Saika, and he works for Boston Light and Sound. Rob, tell us a little bit about what you do at Boston Light and Sound. Jack of all trades. If they need some audio work done, I'll go out and do some audio. If they need some film or cine- digital cinema work done, I'll go out and work on that, just wherever, cool. wherever I'm needed. And, and kind Boston of Light and Sound, what is their main goal as, as a company? Uh, we have kind of two sides of our company. We have a production side and an install side. In our production side, we will basically go anywhere in the world that a job of film or presentation is needed. We will go to Dubai or Europe 
anywhere domestically. We will do any kind of unique film setup that is a one-off, one-of-a-kind, or an install. And in the install uh, is also, wherever it's needed, we'll go out and we'll just do installs that are going to be permanent for sound, film, digital cinema, and the like. So it's a, it's a very uh, worldwide, anything you need company. Cool. So to, let me see if I get this right. Antonella makes sure that the film is archived properly. So then Rob comes in, he makes sure that your projector is working properly and that you can hear it. And then Jason makes sure everything is up to snuff and that you can see it and hear it at your local theater properly. Right? Did I get that exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Right on. <laughs> so so well, let's, let's tell everybody why we're here in Austin. What, what's been going on the last couple of days, the last three days? And uh, so we're at a, a, a film projection workshop. It's been sponsored by EMEA and then the other groups that we've mentioned. Why, what, what have we been teaching the students and why is this important? So um, it was a three-day workshop um, that uh, touched on kind of all aspects um, that a projectionist would need to know to make sure to ha properly handle a film, um, inspect it for projection, um, to be aware of the type of maintenance they need to do on their projectors so that when the film is being run, it's not being um, compromised in any way. And also, um, beyond that, kind of w the, the greater framework in which uh, 35 millimeter, the greater framework in which 35 millimeter, um, access to 35 millimeter prints um, happens through archives, private collectors, and whatnot, and what the standard of care for those materials should be. Okay. How many films would you say are projected today, maybe like percentage wise? Do you know? I mean, it's, it's very small, especially when you are including first-run films. Uh, probably more than 99% of all film today is, is projected digitally. But, you know, here in Austin, we have three uh, great venues to watch. Three, well, more than that, but we yeah. have Alamo, uh, Austin Film Society, and the Paramount, who are all running film regularly. And most major cities have a theater that you can go and watch film at. And so I think that it the desire and um, practice is very much alive today. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, my next question would be then, why is it so important? Why is there a room of 40 some odd people that went to the workshop here? You know, why yeah. is it so important? Or I mean, I think it's particularly important now, and Robert will be able to talk to this also a little bit more, in that throughout all of film history and all of the years that film was being shown in cinemas, there was always an opportunity for apprenticeship. An opportunity. There was, you know, somebody up in the booth who was open and usually open and willing um, to teach a young someone from the younger generation their craft, a craft that many people who are committed to it fell in love with at some point in a way that, um, you know, we watched a we watched some clips from a film earlier today called The Dying of the Light that is, you know, it's really truly cross generational. And so the purpose of this work, I mean, given that film is shown is being shown less and less, there are less and less opportunities for someone young who's interested or even someone who has a little bit of experience in the digital projection to really gain the skills and the knowledge needed to properly project film and proper, not, not only proper handling, but the ideas of, around presentation. Um, and the, so the workshop is sort of trying to maybe fill in some of that information, like it's trying to, to hopefully stop the complete atrophy 
of skills being lost by not being able to practice the craft. So, yeah. but Robert, you can also talk about um, like lineage and uh, mentors and how that fits into all of this. It is a chain of almost, for lack of a better word, dominoes, where the first domino started back 120 years ago. He learned the craft, created the craft, and then passed it on to that person who passed it on to that person. Uh, one, my, I have two uh, owners of the company, Boston Light and Sound, Larry and Chapin, and they've been doing it for well over 45, 50 years. They learned it from somebody who learned theirs back all the way 19, 20, 1930s. So it was a handing of the torch from that generation to Chapin's generation, that generation to my generation. And then when Hollywood went through that dramatic change from, okay, we're not gonna ship out film anymore, your theaters either convert to digital or you're closed. Not everybody could get the funds in time to convert. And then many of those mom and pop shops that have been around for a long time and family members have passed on the work in the generation, they own a way. Uh, a lot of the multiplex theaters that had union contracts or other independents, they, they could not convert, they were gone. A lot of those big single theaters where a lot of the craft was gone, they were kind of closed in the 70s when the multiplex theaters came in. So uh, once the digital cinema came in, they really didn't need the people to hand it down person to person to person. It was just a simple click of a mouse and computer hard drive and you're gone. And it's very important that before it's gone away, we, we take that next generation who still has that spark, who went to that movie theater as a young person, sat in the dark, watched the movie, and they said, wow, this is pretty cool. I want to learn how to do that. Where do I learn how to do that if it's all digital? This group here, Amia, Boston Light and Sound, Kodak, they're all committed to keeping that alive with those people who want to come in the footsteps and carry that torch forward to their generation and beyond. And it's just very important. A lot of us here who are in it, we, we want to give back and we want to pass on the, the knowledge that I have. So I'm probably third or fourth generation from where it really started. And this is the fourth or fifth generation moving forward, so. Yeah, so, so you mentioned kind of uh, you, the, the first time you go in a theater, you watch a movie. What was it for you guys that inspired you to try to get into what you're doing now? Like, what was it that ignited this passion for film? I started working at a, a theater in college as a, as a job on the side, you know, and um, the projection booth from the, from the first day was something that I wanted to get into and um, figure out how it worked and, and work with the machines. And I think that's a story that is um, pretty pretty common, you know, that people get into it in these ways that aren't necessarily something they planned or something that they necessarily wanted to do since childhood or something. Definitely some people did, but, um, you know, you sort of get into it and I think you are, you know, captured in a way by this sort of the machinery and the magic of it. And, um, and that's absolutely what happened, happened to me. So, yeah. I know Rob has a, a has a, a earlier history, possibly, of when he was interested in, in projection. Many of you uh, my age or older, you remember the days of elementary film schools where you had those little film strips with the little projectors and you either had the record, uh, the 45 record, and you'd play a little uh, scientific film strip and you would hear the beep and the film would advance. And I'm always the one, third, fourth, and fifth grade pushing the other kids out of the way to say, let me be the projectionist. <laughs> I want to take care of that film. 
And that has kind of stuck with me because it's all about being part of that story. You, you have enough reality in your regular day. You go to the movie theaters, you want some of that adventure, some escapism, some, something that you don't get in your regular day to day. So when the lights come down and the screen fills with the picture, you're transported to a galaxy far, far away. You're transported to something else. And you're completely something different. You're not you for a couple hours. You're part of that action, the story that the director and the writer want you to feel. And you have a choice. You can either be on one side of the camera or the other. And I said, well, I, I think I might like to be on the part that entertains those people. I can either entertain the people on either side, and I'm on the side of the camera. I'm where the rubber meets the road. One set of people make it, and the other set of people project it. And we are that last line of what those people see and help that director bring their intentions and their dream to the masses. Right. And, and that's well a, said. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. And that's really, I, I heard uh, a couple of times through some of the classes that you should consider yourself as a projectionist part of the crew because you're helping kind of bring that vision to life. And uh, the way you articulate it here and the way that we've seen the passion from everybody out there it's totally, it makes sense, and it's such an important part of that process. But, Antonella, jump in. What, what got you into this? I've always sort of been a behind-the-scenes person. Um, and, but my earliest memory of being attracted to a projector was watching home movies on our like super eight home movies at with my grandfather um and then my mom who at some point was like i'm fixing our projector and i was like great and then i was like, i don't know like 12 or something like that and, I was, and then she was like great i fixed the projector and i'm like move over i'm projecting <laughs> um and then eventually i mean eventually i mean i went up to uh, you know in, throughout high school i was like on the, in the like, av club and the stage manager for the theater plays and whatnot. Um, and then when I got to college uh, at university, um, did cinema studies, and then slowly found my way into the production booth. Um, and uh, learned, got, got a really great opportunity to learn at a time when you could, when like, you know, our classes were showing. I mean, there's still schools around the, around the country that show 16 millimeter and 35 for the classroom. They're very rare. Some of them were in Chicago. Most of them were in Chicago. Some were in Boston. Um, but I was in a, in, at the University of Toronto. I had that opportunity and I just got the bug because it was all about, for me, it was understanding the materiality of film and moving image and that in the end was ultimately what truly, like, well, that, was the, that was the hook. So. Cool. Now that we know why we're here, why you're here, why they're here, what are the kinds of things that people need to learn? So, like, for example, you guys all learned about print handling and inspection and mm -hmm. identifying and creating cues. I'm reading sort of like the curriculum of the syllabus of, of the last yeah. three days. What do you think is one of the most important things in the workshop I mean, I think the most, I think the most important part of the workshop, aside from the skills which are hard to learn, are the over overarching theories and principles. So I think one of the most important things that we said this week or this, this over the past three days was do no harm, which is a very basic and cardinal archival principle, which is do nothing to that print that will endanger it. At this point, 
35 millimeter film prints, 60 mil like all film prints should be considered rare objects. Um, one of our co-instructors, Julian Antos, who couldn't be here, he's already back in Chicago, back at work at the Music Box, very eloquently says, he's like, at this point, we should be, we should be considering ourselves art handlers. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. You need to have the film in order to do any of the other following yeah. steps, right? So archiving is the most important, but then now you have it. And so, Rob, what were some of the things from your perspective that were really important I, I agree. to know? If you, if you don't have something that, well, yes, if you don't have something to show, you really don't have anything. <laughs> but in addition to having a, a great print that is well-maintained and you have a great theater in which to present it, uh, everything goes hand in hand. If you don't have a group of, of all of the following ingredients, it's kind of like a, uh, a cake, if you will. If you don't have all the right ingredients, the cake isn't going to rise to a certain level and it ain't going to taste really well. Mm -hmm. You might have some of those ingredients, but if it's not just right, in addition to the projector and the film and the theater, if the person in the booth doesn't have the passion, you will not take the care and the time to do your job correctly. You'll take the shortcuts and then you will have problems. And I believe every person here that went through the class the last three or four days, the reason why they're here and they want to learn, whether they've been doing it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, a week, two months, they're here because they have the passion to keep it alive and keep it going. So if you do something that you love, I've always been told you never work a day in your life. And I think a lot of the people who have been doing it 25 and 30 years, you keep it going and you will care and you'll keep learning right up until the day you're not here anymore. So you keep learning, you keep passing it on, and then you'll take the time to follow everything that we taught them over the last three days from care and preservation to the chain and care of the projector, to that perfect presentation, focus on screen, sound, and everything that the audience sees from the minute they walk in until the minute they leave. Then at that point, your ingredients are mixed well and you have a beautiful cake, so. <laughs> That's right. Well Who doesn't love cake? I mean. <laughs> I'm gonna start saying that in the booth. Let's go make cake. <laughs> <laughs> we used to say chase them and lace them, but those days are gone. <laughs> so, uh, Rob, you are a part of the Hateful Eight, sort of resurrecting 70 millimeter. So do you think things like that have increased the interest of film in general, sort of road shows like that? I would like to think so. I would really like to hope so. Uh, we... As the team who put it together, we kind of went to some theaters across the country and we, we were like little flies on the wall and we would stand in the back of the box office area and we would watch these people that we didn't know. They would walk in instead of saying, can I have two tickets for this or two tickets for that? They went, I want a couple tickets for the Hateful Eight in 70 millimeter. And it was kind of wow that first time you heard somebody walk in the door and say I want to buy a ticket for something in 70 millimeters like hey pick up the phone like, I just heard a couple and they said yeah I just heard that here at my box office and it was something so different that you haven't heard those words in 70 millimeter since probably about almost 20 years ago or something like that I think the last couple prints were firing away maybe a couple prints of Titanic might have been struck and maybe a few others but there was enough marketing and some other buzz on the internet. I think nowadays in this modern era, the internet really helps push 
something that yeah. might not otherwise Absolutely. have been known about maybe 20 or 30 years ago without Twitter and Facebook and whatever. So people were really responding. And I think that first weekend to go head to head with another other sort of movie that I will not mention, we broke into the top 10 and some markets we were the top two and per screen capita, that theater for only 100 screens in the entire market, North America, maybe 104, to go against that other big unnamed movie, that's an incredible feat of amazingness to do what we did with only 104, 103 screens, whatever it was total. That tells you something, that the interest is still there in the public to see something, if it's done well, put together well, and presented well, you have enough interest that you can keep it going forever if you continue to keep that quality and the passion yes we we extended our run in austin i mean we we ran two over two months of hateful eight wow. you know four shows a day changeover and um all of the projectionists that worked it were like their upper bodies were huge <laughs> afterwards because they <laughs> doubled up the reels and they were like 50 or 60 pound reels um and and we were we were actually really surprised at the turnout because we were selling out shows midday on weekdays and and people people really responded to it you know and they came because it was on film because it was uh, not just 70 millimeter but you know uh, ultra panavision and and just yeah. um, you know they they knew they knew what they wanted and and we're lucky to have a great film community in Austin that appreciates 35 millimeter and 70 and and smaller formats as well. So, do you see audiences coming into the thirty-five when you guys are doing the thirty-five showings? I mean, are you seeing a lot of interest, like from a consumer standpoint? Do you see people coming in saying, "I want to see the film," not just the hateful eight, but in general? What is the response when people come in, and what do you, what do you guys hear? We we're lucky because we have some programmers um, from from you know back in the day that really drove home film film on film and, and, and watching movies on the formats in which they were created. And, um, you know, sometimes it actually has become an issue because we <laughs> will get a print in, we'll plan on showing it on film, and it won't be playable. And, and there are quite a few uh, of our sort of regular attendees that, that get pretty upset about that when we can't do that. So um, we are very lucky here. In, which, in, in that we have a community that really appreciates it. And I think that it takes uh, programmers that push it. I think it takes exhibitors that are willing to um, spend the money to, to support a film program. And you have to build, you have to grow that community yourself. You know, it does not necessarily always happen organically. So, um, uh, how often are these kinds of things happening? Are they ha are they happening all over the country? Meaning workshops like this? How do people get involved if they want to know? Is this your first one? Um, as far as the workshops, this is our second iteration, but this is kind of the built out yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, we did this in twenty in October of twenty fourteen here at the South Lamar Alamo um, as a one day event. And actually thinking back on it, I can't even. Like it's like, like it was like what? What were we thinking? I don't know how we did that. But we basically crammed all of the almost. We tried to cram all of the information that we shared over the past three days into like eight hours. It was <laughs> a little yeah. intense. But we had less. Pe it was like less people. It was like smaller classes and whatnot. So with the collaboration of Alamo and the Association of Moving Image Archivists and Kodak and all of our sponsors and the Film Foundation. 
everyone really like rallied behind it and we really get like the instructors and the curriculum builders were really given the opportunity to kind of like let's try to do something that we really think will will work and give people a little bit of more knowledge and a little bit more hands on and it's still evolving so yeah but I mean as far as other workshops I mean there's not really anything out there I mean and that's it touches on kind of what Rob was talking about too to work in this industry you have to have um, you have to really have the desire because you have to hunt and you have to really try um, you have to make an effort to learn this stuff and it's not easy there, there's not a necessarily a key text that you can just refer to and say I'm going to read this text and we'll learn this practice yeah. it takes hands-on experience apprenticeship it takes or, yeah, apprenticeships yeah, yeah. and yeah. Um, and we're hoping to sort of sort of create an environment in which we can translate that to it to a larger group although you know 35 40 people um, relatively small um, uh, and 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 also take it around the country in the future so yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean it's going to be such an important thing to be sure that this infrastructure gets built back out and that kind of the atrophy that's happened can be replaced and the passion that we saw from everybody here is really inspiring and I, I'm excited to see where where we can take this in the future. One of the things I just wanted to kind of back to for a second was you were mentioning like sometimes you get prints and they're not usable, they're not playable. Can you talk a little bit to like what is the state of kind of film archives and the prints that are available today? Right, well, it, it kind of depends. Um, and something that we try to touch up on the workshop is like, is if you're receiving, if you're loaning from one of the major archives in the United States or abroad, George Eastman Museum, um, Academy Film Archive, um, Cinema Tech Francaise, etc., you're going to receive a print that's projectable because their whole mandate is and their whole mission is to, you know, protect and preserve and to provide access to materials that are in very good condition um, that will be projectable. Um, but you can get prints from kind of all over the place. There's a wonderful network of private collectors that let prints out. There are a number of private archives and whatnot. I mean, at Canyon Cinema, we have a, a collection of artist-made films which are owned by the artist. In many cases, we're loaning out vintage reversal prints that are totally fine and completely projectable. So there's kind of like a whole run into the gamut. And when you're maybe working with, like, when you're potentially finding prints from, or, or like sourcing prints from uh, places that don't have the infrastructure to really necessarily inspect or ensure that a print is projectable, um, that's where the judgment of the projectionist and the person doing the inspection comes in. So they have to know what they can safely show and what they safely can. But there's a lot of completely projectable, wonderful material out there that is vintage. So, yeah. As, as far as I know, there's, there's just a few hundred, and, and by that I mean about two, two to three hundred theaters in the country. They're showing film regularly. And um, uh, Julian and Rebecca, actually, who were instructors here, are part of an organization called uh, Northwest Chicago Film Society, which is, they're incredible, and they do amazing things on, with no resources, basically. Yeah. And um, they have a list, a working list, basically, that they maintain of, of these theaters. And um, it's not very many, you know. But I think that what's happened is the, the quality theaters have maintained. And we don't necessarily feel like, you know, 
if you're not showing film well, that's not, we don't really feel like that practice needs to be sustained. You know, I mean, you, you have to have a quality program at this point. And so I think at this point, we're, we're down to the great, the great theaters in the country. And I'm going to give a shout out to the micro cinemas out in the world. You know, every, all of the underground spaces, art galleries, people who are bringing in projectors, 60 millimeter projectors to show artist made film. Like, that's a, a, one of the ways that um, an interest and uh, an interest in, in seeing art on, like, see, using, like, artists using film as their chosen medium is being propagated. That's where a lot of young people are seeing it. In San Francisco, um, it's, you know, the San Francisco Art Institute was home to uh, like a myriad of filmmakers who are part of sort of the canon of experimental film. Um, has very rich, San Francisco Cinematheque has a long history of showing 16 millimeter, Pacific Film Archive, et cetera, and so on. But we have this one sort of new venue called Black Hole Cinematheque. And it is in this like punk, commune space in the middle of Oakland where they're showing every they're showing whatever like, the cutting edge of what I would say is artist made movie images and that and you you go there and you see young people like young like 20 somethings who've never seen six have no connection to analog to, to their home movies being on film to Uneven, even probably in their lifetime having seen film in a multiplex, right? And they're there, and they're seeing the projectors in the room, and they're, like, falling in love with it, you know? So it's, it's kind of running the, it's running the gamut from, you know, this amazing, ambitious, blockbuster 70-millimeter presentation to, you know, the, the theaters that are sort of sustaining 35 to, you know, basements and... Living rooms. <laughs> Living rooms and right. art galleries. And Although, I mean, having like somebody like Quentin Tarantino to, who has the power and the money and the content to, to, to show people. Like, I had never seen 70 millimeter. So uh-huh. as a concept, it, it seems like, oh, that's probably cool. Yeah. But to, to, for somebody to put the, put the energy behind it so that I could actually see it and be like, holy crap, like, that's... That's why, you know. I mean, people don't appreciate that in, uh, what, almost 100 theaters, there's 90 theaters across the country, in AMCs and Cinemarks across the country, we were watching not just 70 millimeter, but Ultra Panavision, Super Panavision, Ultra Ultra Panavision 70. And Rob, this guy had a lot to do with that, you know? Yeah. It is one thing to say, I'm, I would like to do this. I want to do this. Let, let's see if we can do this. Um, as I understand it, uh, the production company went around and asked companies far and wide, all over the globe, can you do this? Can you make it happen? Can you do 100 machines uh, by such and such a date? And we'd like to present this all around the world. And from what I understand, the answer was no we can't do it, or no, it can't be done, or no, that's near impossible to try and find over 170 millimeter machines that are mostly discarded and trashed. But if there's anybody in the world who could probably do it, why don't you go call Boston Light and Sound? And Boston Light and Sound got a phone call. The idea was presented to Mr. Chapin Cutler, and Mr. Chapin Cutler thought it over and said, uh, you know, based upon what you're asking, let me go talk with Larry, and next thing you know, we are in production 
of calling up places all over the world and knocking on people's doors and picking up discarded 70 millimeter machines, platters, consoles, and the average person who purchased that ticket has no idea how much manpower, hours, and energy, manpower, the parts, uh, well over a year, went into the actual production. P places that have been dormant for a long time of making parts, lenses, lamps, gears, sprockets, other parts, uh, reflectors. You cannot believe the countless hundreds and hundreds of parts that were put back into operation. Original blueprints were taken out and dusted off and <laughs> machine shops were put to that. The, the sheer amount of thought and energy and power. And then take all that, put it all together with all those out, and then just the love because everyone who worked on the project, the owners, the people, it became this common bond, oh, the, the yeah. goal, the, 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 the finish line, it, it, like people said it can't be done, we're going to prove them wrong. And I'm happy to say, damn near, put me, it almost killed me, I was in the hospital. Uh, but the passion, and I said to somebody, I'm going to do this or die trying, <laughs> almost came true. Uh, but I'm happy to tell you that on the opening day, last year, December 2015, we hit the goal of what was asked of us and we hit all 100 plus machines all over and our failure rate was way less than what was thought of and I think it was said something in the neighborhood of 1% versus digital which was 3 to 4% and that 1% was probably something due to shipping damage or human error for just a light mistake and it was rectified right away and back up and running so there was pretty much no shows lost so to turn everything around in under a year put something in place that never existed and do what we did that hasn't been done over 20 years is a sheer, we should call that show Modern Marvels and, and have them go. come down and interview us and yep. had a lot of people and tell me that they wish they got it because their phones were ringing off the hook saying, are you going to be showing Hateful Eight in 70 millimeter? And they were sad that they weren't on that list, but our phones were ringing saying, hey, how do I get involved in that? How do you ship me a projector? And we said, sorry, we're not the ones making that call. You've got to go call the production company, pick up the phone and call them. The demand was unbelievable. The phones were ringing off the hook from all over. They want to show it in 70 millimeter. Right. And, and there's, there's so many movies that I think people are unaware of that are shot on film. I mean, we at Kodak are thrilled to see kind of a resurgence. But, I mean, Star Wars, Jurassic World, Superman, Batman, next, you know, The Magnificent Seven, Wonder Woman, Justice League, like on and on. Uh, at a at a major at a storyteller level, there's some of the biggest storytellers of our generation choose film, and then you've got this incredible story like the Punk Commune, which is actually like I love that because that's what film used to be. It was for everyone, everywhere, and you see these people trying to revive it and bring it back, and inspired by it all over again. It's so great. I mean, we at Kodak. I mean, the world will never know how close it was for there to not be film anymore, at least not be Kodak film. So it's incredible to see this resurgence come back. If I could interrupt, not, not only was it a revival of the film and the format, which hasn't been used since I think it was 1965 with Ultra Panavision, 
it was a throwback and a bow to the hat of the road shows that came before. And if anybody who doesn't know what a road show is, a road show is you have an overture where the audience sits down, the curtains are closed, the music is playing, and you're sitting there and the anticipation is slowly building as you're waiting for that overture to end. And then the first frames of the image come up on screen and then you have an intermission and then you come back and you continue. And that is a, a, a tip to the past that you know, you don't get anywhere else. You certainly didn't get it in digital. And I would ask anybody out there listening to this podcast, if you're a director and you're thinking about doing it, let's do more of that. Let's introduce people, the young crowd who haven't seen it, to what it was in the heyday, the 20s, the 30s, and whatever. Let's bring in more overtures, intermissions. Who says the, the movie has to continue to be 90 minutes? Let's keep going. You got a story? Tell it. You know, uh, for Fantastic Fest, our, our film festival, we went through several years where we had no film at all, besides the repertory content. But, you know, last year we had two features. We had Too Late and we had Son of Saul on 35mm. And these were, uh, I mean, I don't know how that happened, but um, <laughs> that, that says a lot, I think. I think there's a younger generation interested in this. When um, uh, Ryan Gosling was here with uh, Lost River, you know, he demanded on uh, on shooting on film, you know, and it affected the way they could shoot, but he felt it was so important that they, that's what they did, yeah. so. And, and even some of, like you, you were telling me a story about the Paramount earlier. Some of it is, you know, the road show, the film, but also these theaters, these incredible theaters. I mean, you're telling me a story about how Harry Houdini performed magic on the same stage that they're showing a film. How, I mean, how incredible is that? You won't see that in any multiplex or modern day theater built right. in the last 50 plus years that I could say now, through our group here in film and whatever, I was standing on a stage which you really almost never hear these days that a movie theater has a stage that had the orchestra pit that can fit 1,300 people and that on this very piece of wood, right where I'm standing, the great Harry Houdini had performed magic. So much so that the legend, urban legend, all these years later still exists that if you looked up in the ceiling, there is a little hole in the ceiling and that became known as the Houdini hole because people claim through urban legend that he used that to have the rope come down and help him levitate above the audience. And the urban legend was put to rest like, no, wait, he never did any kind of levitation or floating trick in here <laughs> that is not used in any Harry Houdini trick. And I was just told this today. So, Well, that's the other thing about film is how it preserves history, too. So what an important job, like Antonella, you and your, your archiving film. It's so important, you know, to get that opportunity to save moments in time and history for people to see. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, 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 we've, there's a wonderful community of archivists and preservationists out there that are working their hardest to preserve um, not only the artistic legacy of moving, of cinema, um, but everything all the way down to newsreels. I mean, right. I don't say, sorry, down is actually the wrong word, everything to um, home movies, uh, newsreels, uh, educational films things that really capture the cultural experience of a very specific time. Um, and beyond, I mean, aside from the our preserving our cultural history, it's also about preserving the aesthetic of the time. Like, it, you know, these are, these are things that are made outside of what we would call cinema are a testament to 
you know, what life was actually life, an un- uncommercialized version of what life was like. Yeah. And yeah, so there are, again, archives across the world actively not only just preserving cinema, which is, of course, very important, but the sort of, you know, the wider cultural heritage of the world. Yeah, um, we had Ken Burns come. I mean, we were blown away. He came on our podcast, and Josh sort of wrapped it up, I think, at the end with this really great question about what... What, did he, what does he see from being able to see past generations um, because of the preservation of film? What, what inferences can you make about the history of life? But we wouldn't have that chance if we didn't, if we didn't take the care to preserve it. And it's really a, really a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so you guys have all been so generous with your time, and I'm sure you're totally exhausted from the last three days. <laughs> so I just want to wrap it up with with one final question is you know you've spent the last three days with this next generation for all the people out there that are listening for the folks that are here right in front of us now what what advice do you give them to keep this thing which we feel is so important alive and and a part of our culture and our lives someone asked me this question right before i came out here which was sort of surprising weird (laughs) and she caught me kind of on the spot so I'm sort of half, I mean, I don't know that I am prepared, but I think that what I would say is to only say what I've, like, to to share the sentiment that I felt at the time when I got the bug, which was pursue as much language, as much knowledge as you can. Um, Talk to anyone you can who's in the field, who's working in projection, find out about their experiences and just try to make yourself give yourself a really steep learning curve of not only understanding how the mechanics of the of the machine work what the properties of the film are but also what the the nuances and the precision of presentation are to really take it the complete full circle so just try to absorb as much of, as much of it as you can for for film goers they they just need to seek it out and demand it you know and um, to find films uh, that are showing on 35 if there was some sort of way to easily find screenings if, on 35 millimeter, I don't know if that's something like that exists. If only there was an app coming create, out yeah, shortly from Kodak maybe in the app store. Maybe. We want an app. Woo! We want an app. We want an app. Let the people speak. <laughs> the people have spoken. Yes. So, you know, you asked how does the people... Hollywood lives and dies by the box office, and that's right. everything about uh, do you get a sequel or not? Well, how much did it take in? How much did we put in our pockets? If you see a film out there that you like, support it on film. Buy the tickets for the film. Don't buy the tickets for the other format. Support it. Write letters. Uh, have your grassroots campaign. Get other people behind you. The more money those tickets show at the box office for the film, that's going to alert somebody higher up, like, hey, look at that. I got almost as much money on the film as I did this other format. And I'll leave you, you know, another one. Isn't it funny that today, in this modern-day era, it's so ingrained over the last 120 years, and all of us, you, you wanna, what do you want to do tonight? Let's go out and let's catch a film. It's, it might not really be film, but you still call it a film. You don't call it, let's go catch a video at the theater. You know, video is TV. TV is something that you have at your house. If you go buy it for a film a, a, a format that's not celluloid, yeah. you're just watching, you're paying for a giant TV. Film is something that has been ingrained in all of you for... Let's go intended. catch a moving image. Yeah, let's go, let's go catch a, a digital image <laughs> together. Let's go catch a Blu-ray on the big screen down at the, at the multi-videoplex. 
It's yeah. still called film. You still ask your friends out to go catch a film. We saw something today that says a documentary film, but it wasn't on film, but it's still called film. It's just, that's how deeply ingrained in it. It's, it's part of us. It's who we are as a people. It's, it's been around so long. I don't think that's ever going to go away, and I'm really hoping it swings around. Everything goes out of style, but the swings comes around back, and I'm hoping we're here to help that bring it back around again. We're bringing it back. Absolutely. All right, thank you so much, everybody. Everybody out there, thank you for the panelists and for for coming on the show. Um, If you like what you heard, please look up the Kodakery on iTunes. Quick search. Thank you for for Kodak, for sticking with it, and (laughs) for the long haul. You know, if it wasn't for you, we'd all be out of business for not making the film. Let's hear it for Kodak. And thank you to Diane for coming down yesterday for for giving us that wonderful, awesome lecture about how film is made. Ladies and gentlemen out there, if you're still listening, you have no idea how incredibly complicated it is to make (laughs) film. When you hear that lecture, you're going to be blown away how many steps it is. So, yes, thank you to Kodak because we wouldn't be able to do what we do without you. Thank you. I feel like we should have a group hug. Yeah, we're hugging. Maybe later. We're going to do it later off air. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) Thank you. great satisfaction to be able to speak to you through the medium of this wonderful invention.